Okay. And now live from... <laughs> okay. Today's our second session uh, looking at speech practice, looking at the nature of skillful speech and communication. And it's a topic we looked at last time, and that session, for those who weren't here, is on the uh, Dharma Seed website. And last time, I gave an overview of the importance of speech practice and uh, also looked at some foundational teachings, particularly uh, teachings and practices, particularly the teachings about the ethical guidelines for skillful and wise speech, and then also some practices for being more present during speech. And today I want to continue with uh, the foundational practices. I'll do three, really four things today. The first is I'll give a very brief review of some of what we looked at last time in terms of the importance of speech practice and some of the foundational teachings and practices. Then, secondly, I want to look at a, one of the foundations in more depth. And that's, that's the, what I'm calling a foundation of cultivating presence and awareness in the midst of speech, which is not easy, which is not easy. We often are quite automatic when we're talking. You know, it's like I talk and my mindfulness and awareness is, is not there. <laughs> in the same way. And so the second area, we'll talk about uh, developing presence during speech. The third, want to particularly uh, look at another aspect of speech practice which is crucial, which is coming out of a good heart. And in particular, I want to focus on the theme of cultivating empathy during our speech practice. And then lastly, I want to, uh, on the basis of that exploration of those themes, want to have us do about a, about a 12 or 15 minute practice period where we get to practice what I've been talking about in ways that will be helpful for the next week. And my hope is that we are inspired to uh, bring some of what we've been exploring here into our daily lives. Uh, how many people did that in the last week? Brought, you know, gave some further focus to your speech practice? Great. So we can also... I'll leave some time for discussion at the end, and we'll have a chance to hear some of those some of those reports. So those are my those are my really the four areas I want to cover. So first, a brief review, and I also want to tie it a little bit to a question that Mark brought up, and the Fourth um, of July, which is tomorrow. So I mentioned last time how speech practice is such a crucial practice. And especially for those of us who are leading everyday lives in the world. That uh, when we take our speech practice as a, a significant part of our spiritual practice, many of us suddenly have many, many hours to devote to our most cherished values. <laughs> and we, and it, is less appropriate to complain about not enough time for meditation. So that's one of my ho- hopes, is to reduce the amount of complaining. Uh, 
I think it also almost goes without saying that skillful speech is so crucial that we can have uh, wonderful, kind words that can be completely healing in a given moment or can be so, so much of a support or can, can help someone, let's say, who might be going through something very difficult feel connected, feel understood, can make all the difference in a moment. You know, skillful speech can also resolve conflicts. You know, ultimately, perhaps, it can stop violence and end wars. And so, a tremendous power. And, of course, unskillful speech can lead to conflict, can lead to harm, can lead to the breakdown of relationships, can lead to tremendous amounts of suffering, can lead to war. I think we know that. And so it's a very, very crucial area, a very, very beautiful area. And yet it's uh, challenging. And it's actually also uh, challenging, I think, uh, in many contemporary communities. Uh, Something that's always been interesting to me is the way that we actually need to develop the speech practice more fully to be adequate for our situations in the contemporary world. Interestingly, several uh, monastic communities that have developed in the West, uh, one in England, one in the U.S., connected with the, uh, the Thai forest tradition, a monastery of Maravati in England, and Abayagiri here north, uh, north of us in uh, Mendocino County, uh, both found that their speech practices were not adequate to deal with conflict in their community. These are people dedicated to spiritual practice. And they felt a need to bring in further disciplines, particularly the discipline of nonviolent communication, to supplement their work. And similarly, uh, you know, my own observation has been, even in some of the retreat centers uh, and, and community centers, such as Spirit Rock or uh, Insight Meditation Society in the East Coast, uh, often, when there have been conflicts, people have not always been so skillful with speech. In fact, I, I was actually asked to come in. We had a conflict that was quite a serious conflict about four years ago. And I was asked to come in and work with the staff for four months on speech and communication practice. And, um, and so it's, it's an area that I think we need a lot of attention to. And as I mentioned last time, some of what I'm be offering today is uh, more traditional in terms of teachings on speech and communication, and some of it reflects uh, ways that I have found helpful in developing over the last seven years uh, five and seven day retreats on speech and communication practice and teaching it quite a bit in a number of different contexts. And I have felt myself called to innovate to, in particular, with a colleague, uh, Nyanika Orensofer, who was here, I guess, three weeks ago. We've been uh, really making connections between mindfulness practice, loving-kindness practice, uh, traditional teachings on right speech, nonviolent communication, and our own attempts to develop particularly the uh, connection of inner awareness 
and speech and interaction um, occurring at the same time, to develop inner and outer awareness at the same time through a lot of different practices. Um, I'm going to be giving some of those here, actually just the basics. I mentioned last time we had about 25 hours of material at our last retreat. Here we're going to have like three or four hours, <laughs> actually less than that. So won't, there's a lot that we won't be doing here, but it's a very, it's a very a powerful area. And I'll try to be clear again on what is traditional and where I'm being innovative so, uh, so you know and you can uh, know that, um, uh, really know the origins. It's also, uh, I found interesting, this I want to relate to the 4th of July, that uh, skillful speech is something that is really emphasized in many traditions. I'll be emphasizing particularly uh, the teachings from Buddhist tradition, but I, I was just reflecting and looking at uh, uh, how, it, how it turns up in other traditions. Of course, you can find it, I think, in most of the world religions. There's a real emphasis on skillful speech. This is from uh, the letter of James in the uh, Christian Bible. If any man among you professes to be religious but doesn't bridle his tongue and deceives his own heart, this man's religion is in vain. But if any man offends not in word, he is a perfect man. (laughs) This is from the uh, Lakota, uh, Native American tradition. The chief, Wabasha, advised the younger members of his tribe to guard their tongue in their youth so that in, in age, their matured thoughts would be of service to others. <laughs> and so to really give attention to, to speech. And I was also thinking of the value of speech in the democratic tradition related to the 4th of July, that it's actually having a sense of free and open speech and having opportunities to speak deeply uh, about what really matters to a community is at the heart of democracy. It's really connected very much to the uh, celebration of the 4th of July, even though it's nowadays it's mostly holidays and fireworks. But there actually, of course, is a deep meaning. Uh, the deep meaning of democracy really is connected very much with a kind of free speech. And we know in our culture that that speech often um, gets compromised when there's fear. You know, historically, speech has been curtailed and even violated when there's been fear, such as in times of war or conflict or in the 1950s with the McCarthy period, or, of course, more recently with all these revelations of that all of us have, been, um, have had our phones and emails monitored by the uh, NSA. I think you all know that, right? And, <laughs> and uh, you know, and uh, of course it's metadata, so it doesn't matter. Okay. That was a joke. <laughs> okay, so in any case, this notion of free speech is very, very crucial in clarifying what is skillful speech in that way. I'm not going to talk so much about that dimension of speech, but I think it's quite important. And that in a full looking at speech practice, we would also want to go into uh, aspects of the freedom of speech, the chance uh, who has who speaks, who has recourse to speech, and so forth. A lot of other issues that I think are more connected with the with the democratic tradition. 
And so I think there's something still to be developed. I, I, I'll just, I can't resist. I'll quote uh, Walt Whitman. I, I always like to quote him on the 4th of July. He, he wrote a book in 1871 called Democratic Vistas. And he said, he, he made a call. He said, we need a sublime and serious religious democracy. You know, sort of a spiritually based democracy. And he said, we have frequently printed the word democracy, yet I cannot too often repeat that it is a word, the real gist of which still sleeps quite unawakened. It is a great word whose history, I suppose, remains unwritten because that history has yet to be enacted. <laughs> so, the visionary. Okay, so there's a vision, visionary aspect to speech and democracy. So um, last time I spoke particularly about a few aspects. I talked about the four uh, guidelines that are particularly the way that the Buddha talks about skillful speech, skillful and wise speech. The guidelines to be truthful, to be helpful, to come out of a good heart, and to have appropriateness of speech or good timing. The, the aspect of truthfulness being very, very crucial for trust. The Helpfulness really being about our motivation for speaking. The quality of the, the good heart being emphasized very, very often to, to uh, really call forth the spirit of metta, the spirit of care, the spirit of love, to see whether that's there in one's speech. And then the quality of good timing, appropriateness, is this necessary speech, Is it, am I just distracted, and so forth. And so... Uh, one of the, as it were, homework exercises for the last week was to really take those four guidelines and see when you follow them what you find. That they are crucial. And what's really um, especially important to note is that they all are intended to go together. We can come out of this beautiful heart, be incredibly truthful, and be very, very helpful and really mess up our timing and lead to complete mess, right? That's possible. So the teaching, the teaching's interesting. It's saying have all four of these at once and check them out. And they're really about really uh, checking out our intention and checking out what, what actually is happening in my speech. So these become a, a wonderful basis for mindfulness practice. It's like you can look at yourself and see, oh, looks like I'm not being quite truthful now. I'm exaggerating or I'm, you know, I'm saying something for self-image. Then I look at myself, what's going on? Or I'm actually in a rush and I'm actually not very kind at the, in the moment. And I can look at that and say, what's going on? Or I just find myself chattering and, and having just what could be called distracted speech. And I can say, what's going on? not from the sense of blaming or judging, but just using these guidelines to really help with our mindfulness, to really help with our looking. And it's a major way that they can be, be used. This is one summary from the Buddha. And he actually talks about five factors. I think there are two expressions of the good heart here. A statement endowed with five factors is well-spoken, not ill-spoken. It is blameless and unfaulted by knowledgeable people. Which five? It is spoken at the right time. It is spoken in truth. It is spoken affectionately. It is spoken beneficially. It is spoken with a mind of goodwill. 
So I think, again, the, the affectionate and the goodwill, I think, are, are very similar. And those, those, those are guidelines we're invited to follow and really to uh, both to intend. We can use them very much as intention practices. Check in with those guidelines before a meeting, before a difficult discussion, before writing a difficult email, right? can really uh, work with those guidelines. I mentioned last time how I keep those guidelines near my telephone and sometimes look at them or bring them to a meeting and write them down on a piece of paper. So you can really work with the guidelines. It's a really wonderful area of practice. And the second, second area that I looked at last time was to invite us developing more of a sense of presence. And I want to kind of wrap this into the second uh, area that I'm talking about, which is how to develop a sense of presence and awareness during speech. And last time I talked generally about that, saying that what I have found particularly useful, and this is not explicit in the teachings of the Buddha, but I found it quite important, is to be able, in order to have our speech be practiced, it's somehow we have to develop a quality of presence and awareness in the midst of speech. This is not easy. This is not a beginning practice. How can I have a sense of presence so that I'm not simply on automatic? when I'm speaking. And so this is what this second area is really pointing to. I sometimes talk about it as combining inner and outer awareness at the same time. And a crucial way to do that is uh, to really follow, to see that there are different pieces involved. One piece is simply developing inner awareness on the cushion so that we can track what's there. That we do when we meditate. We're all, I think, developing that capacity to notice there's anger, there's fear, there's uh, this thought, there's that thought going on. And in particular, we want to cultivate that capacity and then gradually bring it out into the sphere of action and interaction. What this is doing is gradually bringing our practice more into our more active realms of our lives and not saying that meditation is simply a matter of being in this protected uh, environment where we're just on our own. Because if our awareness is limited to those places, it's quite limited, right? How do we bring our mindfulness into our interaction and our speech? It's not easy because partly some of the reasons are cultural. I think we have a very, we have, how should I say it? We have very active minds in this culture. We have huge amounts of stimulation. And we are the sons and daughters of Monsieur Descartes, who said, I think, therefore I am. (laughs) Supporting three or four hundred years of cultural development (laughs) in which thinking is taken to be at the core of our identity, right? And we're all products of that in different ways, right? And there are, there are a lot of subtleties to that. And again, I'm not saying that that's simply a mistake. It's complicated from an evolutionary point of view. But that being said, um, many of us find when we start meditating that our minds are pretty active and they, um, as in the, the words of one of my friends, they have no shame. <laughs> our minds have no shame. They keep on going. And it's challenging 
to actually have mindfulness when we're speaking. So how to do that? First, cultivate the inner awareness in the protected environment. A lot of what we have to do, I think, with more advanced capabilities, like being able to have inner and outer awareness at the same time, is we have to develop several capabilities in isolation from each other and then bring them together. A little bit like learning to ride a bike. And we have to develop quite a few abilities. We have to learn how to be with the bike. We have to learn balance. We have to uh, develop our muscles. And we have training wheels and we have special environments. And so for working with uh, speech practice to develop this inner and outer awareness, uh, first develop the inner awareness during the protected environments, uh, in the protected environments of meditation. And then gradually start developing also a, a way of having some inner awareness at the same time that you're speaking. And this doesn't necessarily mean the very developed way of tracking exactly what's going on inside. You know, it's not like we're expected to be in a conversation at the same time be able to say, okay, there was that thought, there was that thought. Okay, that's the third mention of this thought. Okay, that's a little bit too much to expect. What we're, in, in, from a practical point of view, it's pretty good if we can track the big ones, right? If we can be in a conversation and know that we just got angry. That is very helpful, to know that there was something that was said, there was a reaction, right? particularly with difficult kinds of speech. And so what helps to have us have some inner awareness? A key is going to be having some body awareness. And so I, I often invite the practice, even right now, as you're listening, keep 10 or 20% body awareness. You can do that by having your awareness of your hands on your knees or the feet on the floor or the contact with the cushion. Can you develop some body awareness at the same time that you're listening? Knowing that at the moment, you don't have to speak. It's a simpler situation. And I find and that cultivating body awareness is really, really crucial to having this sense of inner and outer awareness at the same time. Now, given that we're in a very mental culture, body awareness also is challenging for many of us. And for me, my first discovery in learning to meditate was that I was pretty disconnected from my body. That I was basically thinking all the time. Even though I had been very physical, I was a hiker and an athlete, but I was thinking all the time. And so coming to the body is very, very supportive of having inner and outer awareness at the same time. And so anything that one does that cultivates body awareness is going to be helpful. Walking meditation, yoga, just coming back to the body continually. And then as that develops, one can begin to have some uh, ability to not have the mind be completely automatic. Even 10 or 20% of attention with one's body will cut through the mind being automatic all the time. And so this is long-term practice, right? This is not something that's overnight. But a key will be to have some degree of presence when you are listening and speaking. It's easier when you're listening. And so you can cultivate this, especially if you're listening. (coughs) Watch television and stay in your body. 
radical Western teaching. (laughs) So, and as a practice, you can you can do a few things. You can just keep some awareness of your body as you're talking. That's one way to do it. Another would be just to try to have a sense of being present to yourself and to another as you as you are speaking. Last time we introduced a further tool which was which is a helpful way to keep coming back and this is the the practice of pausing. Again, we want to do a lot of different things that take us out of the automatic uh, the automatic tendency that take us out of being on automatic in our speech. Pausing is very very helpful. When you're in the middle of a conversation, just pause from time to time. You know, I think some of you know the technique that's used by Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese teacher, of what he calls having a mindfulness bell for groups, where every 20 minutes or so a bell is rung and there's a pause. For in his tradition, it's for three breaths. <coughs> People pause for three breaths, and we I've used that tool in a lot of groups I've been part of. And sometimes there's someone assigned to be the bell ringer, you know, as it were, the pause person. <laughs> you know? And sometimes I've seen the pause person when when suddenly when things get a little bit conflictual, person will ring the bell instantly. Everyone pauses, and since this is a mindful group dedicated to wisdom and compassion, uh, the group you know, interestingly, sometimes what was seemed to be developing is something that could get a little hotter, right? Have a pause and something people, as it were, come back to their senses. Interesting, right? I think you know that from group dynamics or from interpersonal dynamics. Pause is a very simple but very power, potentially powerful tool. So those are some of the tools for cultivating more presence. And I wanted to mention further, before we do an exercise, a further set of tools for developing empathy. And this is also very, very crucial. That as we are being attentive, we want to develop the capacity to be attentive both to ourselves and to another. Again, it sounds simple, but it's, it's not easy, right? It's actually, in a, psychologically, it is not a beginning capacity. We know that psychologically, we have to be able to be present to ourselves and present to another. It sounds simple, but for a number of us, there are tendencies not to be able to do that. We might be, if we are on one side, we might be narcissistic, overly narcissistic, and be actually only capable of attending to ourselves. You may have conversations with people who fit that pattern. Does anyone? Do you feel like sometimes you're talking with someone and the person isn't really listening to you so much? Is primarily referring to... to himself or herself, that might be a typical distortion. The other distortion, we would say, is codependence, where someone actually doesn't stay home and doesn't value or track what's happening to oneself and is exclusively focused on the other. And I think we know, how many of us know times we've been like that or know people who might fit that pattern, right? So this capacity to be aware of self and aware of other is, is, is a reflection in part of psychological maturity. And if we don't, if we need, we may need to do more work to develop the capacity really to listen to another or really to be 
with ourselves when we're in interaction. And so then we come to this capacity to actually not just be present to ourselves, which is what we were emphasizing so far, the quality of presence, staying with one's body and so forth, but actually be um, someone who can be a good listener to another, to be able to listen to another person and really be there for that person. Again, we know, I think from our own experience, that this is one of the most um, crucial human capacities. We also know that it's wired into the brain. The normally functioned limbic system uh, produces empathy. I was, I was reading some, and there are ten parts of the brain that support empathy. And the normally functioning limbic system, which is that actually we are connected and we actually have the capacity to really uh, be quite sensitive to the feelings of others. I think we know that at times. And unfortunately, that uh, basic capacity tends to get overridden, partly culturally, partly by our own upbringing and conditioning. And for many of us, we have to relearn that, or we have to see where it's hard to be empathic, right? And some of us, maybe it, it, it actually is more intact. But we can know that the capacity to be empathic is a natural capacity. It's the capacity we see in children when they're really concerned with someone else, right? And so we, we can really have faith that this is a basic capacity, even though we can also train to be empathic. In terms of our speech practice, to this is part of our uh, intention practice, that we can go into uh, a communication and have the intention really to listen to another, really to connect, really to understand, whatever language we use. And so when we think of a set of tools that we're developing for speech practice, this is a core tool. And this is it's partly an intention tool that we go in to a situation intending to listen. And probably for many of us, we do this naturally. You know? but, but for many of us, the intention can really help. And then we also can, in a sense, uh, train to be more empathic. For me, the quality of empathy, of being able to be with another, and to have this inner and outer awareness is actually a manifestation of the core Buddhist teaching of not being an independent self. Because in the experience of empathic listening to another, there's a beautiful sense of interdependence. And as a practice, this is a beautiful practice that can really take us quite far to develop a sense of interdependence and to see where we may get stuck in a sense of uh, me and mine. We can see where does empathy break down? Where am I no longer interested in the other person's feelings? Often that's when they have different views <laughs> or a conflict arises. We know very well that when conflict arises and there's polarization, empathy breaks down very often. Um, and we have a sense of, I'm right, that person's feelings don't really matter because that person's on the other side. Is that familiar? And so having the intention to be empathic can be a powerful tool when there are differences or when, there, when there's conflict. <clears throat> so, just a few more words, and then I want to do a practice. I want to emphasize for this period, particularly being empathic and knowing 
what one's own feelings are and what another person's feelings are, what another person's um, emotions are. And so this is an extension of our, uh, of our own mindfulness practice where we're tracking, and partly part of what we do in our own mindfulness practice is we start to really explore our own emotions, among other things, as well as thoughts. We get to know, oh, this is what fear is like. Oh, this is what happiness is like. This is what joy is like. You know, I know for myself, before I started meditating, I didn't really have a very developed sense of what my emotions were. I could talk about them, perhaps, but when one sits for half an hour and there's anger for the full half hour, and you sit with that, and you know, okay, this is what anger is like in the body. Oh, here's where my mind goes during anger. Oh, look at that. Oh, look at that. Self-righteousness. Who would have thought? <laughs> you know, look at that. Oh, I'm doing, um, oh, I recognize that way of defending myself. You know, and we, we study ourselves. And we, study, and we study the way anger feels. And we do this with joy. We do this with happiness. We do this with other kinds of emotions. And I think we also expand our emotional vocabulary. We develop more of what uh, Daniel Goleman calls emotional intelligence. We, we say, oh, I don't just have three emotions. Maybe I have ten. <laughs> right? you know, and I can identify them. I can, I can talk about the subtle differences between irritation, anger, and frustration. Right? And I can really begin to identify those. And as I do that with myself, I can also be able to tune into the way it is with others. You know, and can really start to have a sense of uh, what's there as an emotion. Now, um, I want to say one or two more things. I want to do an exercise. I've, we've been helped a lot by working with the discipline uh, of nonviolent communication, which is a Western training that's been developed by Marshall Rosenberg. I think many of you are familiar with it. How many of you have some background in nonviolent communication? And one of the very helpful distinctions made there is that helps us to really work with feelings and emotions is to have a pretty clear distinction between uh, emotions and thoughts. Because in our language, we often conflate the two. We, we don't really distinguish them adequately. And so we may, we may, uh, we may talk about uh, our experience in ways that suggest that there's an emotion, but it actually may be a thought, such as, I feel manipulated. Is that an emotion? No. There may be an emotion there, but it may, it may be frustration or anger. But feeling manipulated is more of an interpretation. Right? How about I feel confused? Is that a, a feeling? It can be confusion, the feeling. What? I think confusion. I think it is. Yeah, I think. Yeah. How about I feel misled? Okay. In nonviolent communication, these are called faux feelings. <laughs> I feel manipulated, I feel misled, I feel disrespected. Again, there can be emotions involved, and we often know what the person's talking about, but these actually uh, are primarily interpretations, or, or what's being reported is primarily an interpretation. I feel manipulated, I feel disrespected, I feel uh, what? What would not be another example? I feel deceived, right? I feel judged, right? Again, we know what the person's talking about. So, and I feel hurt's probably a little ambiguous. Yeah, that can it could be either. 
if it implies that you hurt me, that's more of an interpretation. If it's saying, I feel pain, I feel hurt, that's, that's I think, more of an emotion. So I think that's a little bit in the middle. Um, okay, there's a lot more we could say about feelings and emotions, but I want to do, I want to do our exercise. Um, the key to working with feelings really follows from our meditation practice. For ourselves and others, it's to be able to track them without blame or judgment and just to know what's happening. To know, oh, that seems to be frustration with the other person. Oh, I'm feeling angry. Oh, there seems to be joy. Just to track it and to be able, this is following nonviolent communication, to be able to express emotions, again, without judgment and without interpretation. In the long run, and we'll look at more of this more next time, in the long run, one of the keys to skillful communication will be to be able to express our inner experience in ways that don't involve interpretation, particularly of the other, and that don't involve judgment, either of oneself or others. That this is uh, something that is particularly helpful when there are differences or when there is conflict. Essentially, when we, one of my teachers of communication, uh, Dan Klerman and Mudita Nisker, they use the phrase radically reflexive language. And what they mean by that is language that only refers to oneself, such as just saying, I'm angry, rather than saying, I feel manipulated. Right? I feel manipulated is judging the other. It's going to tend to put the other person on the defensive. And so... At this foundational level, what I want to suggest we can learn is the capacity to track feelings, to track them in the other empathically, and to be able to express emotions um, increasingly without necessarily bringing in interpretations and judgments and blame. Okay? So, okay, we'll do an exercise now. And so, find a partner... And we'll do a dyad. We'll do this for about 10 or 12 minutes. Find a dyad, form a dyad, put your chair or your cushion in proximity to this person so that in a moment you'll be able to speak. Okay? Raise your hand if you don't have a partner. Okay? Okay, we're going to do uh, two short exercises, one having to do with presence and staying aware, and the other having more to do with feelings and emotions, okay? So, um, put yourself in physical proximity, and the first exercise will have each person be able to speak for two minutes. And so, uh, each group decide who's going to speak first. Raise your hand. And then a moment. It's very important that each group have one person who goes first. Okay. <laughs> I've learned that over the years. <laughs> okay. 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 So the content is uh, just to just to speak. Actually, it'll just be maybe even yeah, about two minutes. It'll just to be just to speak a little bit 
to introduce yourself to the other person, to say your name, some, anything that you'd like to share with the other person about yourself. Okay, so the speaker is going to speak that. So maybe just take a little, a few moments. Each of you reflect, kind of what might you say to this other person? Just for, just basically just for a minute or two. Okay. Now, the, what we're going to be doing now, we're, we're, we're having training in being able to be with content but also focus on the process, meaning keeping inner awareness and outer awareness at the same time. So here, I'd like you, whether you're a speaker or a listener, I'd like you to keep some degree of presence both as you speak and as you listen. Okay? This might be just to have some awareness of your body. It could just be to have the hands in a light way and then listen. It could just be you may have some other way that you're present, okay? So we'll just try that. So is that clear enough? And I'll, I'll, ring, uh, I'll ring bells to begin and end. So I'll, I'll do the timing for everyone. Are the instructions clear enough? Okay, okay. pretty simple. Okay, so uh, we know who's going first. Okay, so we'll work with intention a lot. So uh, set your intention to keep both inner awareness and outer awareness at the same time for this two-minute practice. Set it now, and I'll ring the bell to start in about 10 seconds. Okay. Another 20 seconds. So finish up and now switch and we'll work again with intention. This is kind of like a pause. So come back to yourself and switch now. Listener becomes speaker, speaker becomes listener. And now set your intention. As a speaker, it's to just uh, introduce yourself or speak in whatever way you'd like and to keep a quality of presence. And then for the listener, also to keep a sense of being present in whatever way, for either of you, in either way, in whatever way helps. Could be with being aware of the body some or whatever way. So set your intention now and I'll ring the bell in about 10 seconds.
About 30 seconds more. So finish up and thank your partner. <laughs> and stay where you are in terms of your seats because we'll do a second exercise. This one will be more focused on feelings. So that first exercise, you can use that as, uh, we'll, we'll talk about it together in a moment, but you can use something like that, bring it out into daily life. So the second exercise is focused on tuning into feelings. Again, we do, th- do that a lot naturally, <clears throat> but we can also do it with a clear intention. And so what I'll ask you to do is just to think about something that happened maybe in the last day or two that had some significance for you that you could talk about in about a minute or a minute and a half. And let me give you an example. So just this will be, this will be the content. So just to talk about something normal. It could be I went walking near my house and it was really great to be with the summer and so forth or I went out in my garden and did some weeding and it was really great. Or, so I'll, I'll do one and when I say this, um, tune in to what I might be feeling and then I'm going to ask you, the exercise is going to be to tune in, the listener is going to tune in to what the other person is feeling and there might be multiple feelings or emotions and then you're going to, at, when, when I ring the bell, you're going to say, I'm sensing that you're feeling something like this. I'm sensing that you're feeling this, joy, a little bit of frustration, whatever. could be something like that. So this is, this is simply, this is a, a very simple empathy exercise or a way to tune in deliberately to emotions. It's something, again, that we could extend during the week. So I'll do this. I'll say something, and you do this with me, okay? So become empathic towards Donald. <laughs> okay. Okay, ready? Okay. okay, stay this way for the rest of your lives. <laughs> okay. okay. Uh, thank you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. And, okay. Um, and just try to have a sense, it shouldn't be too hard, of what, of what my, some of my emotions might be. I mean, in the long run, we want to be empathic towards emotions, thoughts, you know, what really matters to the person, quite a few things. But we start just focusing on one, one aspect, which is feelings or emotions. Okay. So yesterday I was uh, going out and um, my tomatoes are just so, they're getting really, really big. It was really great to see them and, you know, I went out and the mustard's really good. I was able to get mustard right before I had my lunch and get some mustard and, and um, steam it. And the apricots came so quickly. Wow. They're really, but, but they're still good. But a lot of them are almost like immediately too soft. So, meh. Okay. So, okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Cut. <laughs> okay. So just name, name, you might say, I'm sensing that you felt, okay, what? Very judgmentally. <laughs> okay, no. okay. Let's start with the more obvious and get to the more subtle. Huh? Delight 
I felt delight, right? Proud. 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 Excited. Happy. Enthusiasm. Yeah, there's a little bit of a little bit of sadness at the mushy apricots. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that you got it right. (laughs) This was this was we are well equipped with our human, you know, genetic background to do this exercise. Okay, so you got it. So everyone did that great, you know. So there can be multiple emotions. Okay, so um, let's have the person going first now. Did I give you time to think about something? Just think about something of that order that you could talk about in a minute, a minute and a half. Very simple, not some profound traumatic event that happened three days ago. That that would take ten minutes to explain. (laughs) Okay, just something you can do in a minute or so. Okay, reflect on that. Okay, everyone have something? Okay, we'll have the first person... Have the first person uh, go again, and again we're going to uh, we'll work with intention. Really crucial part of this: set your intention, both of you. The speaker, just to speak truthfully, if you can keep some quality of being present, that's great. Okay. And the listener, tune into the feelings. If you can keep present, fine. If that's too much, just focus on the feelings. Okay. So. Ten seconds to set the intention, and I'll ring the bell. Okay. To finish up in about 30 seconds. So now, you may not have uh, finished with everything, but now let's have the listener. Uh, in a moment, we'll just say I, something like, I sensed you were feeling, you know, and just much like you did with me. And for the speaker, just stay silent for a while. See what it feels like to be heard empathically. It might, might be off a little bit, might not be. It might be, might be things that you actually didn't even know were there. So see what that feels like. And then just after the person's finished speaking, just say in one or two words, yeah, that was really accurate. Or whatever, or or whatever. Okay, okay, okay. So let's have the uh, now the listener just say what you heard. Okay, we can go right now.
Just naming the emotions. So the listener should finish up. So let's finish up now. So I just want to have, remember the listeners should be really brief, just should say, I'm sensing that you felt and name four emotions. That's all that the listener says. The listener doesn't go into some big, you know, big talk. Okay. Okay, so let's, let's switch now. Uh, the second person as speaker and just reflect on what you're going to talk about. Again, just keep it really simple. Uh, talk about something that had meaning for you, but t- just for a minute, minute and a half. Okay? Listener tunes into the emotions. Okay? So let's set the intention. Take 10 seconds to set the intention, then I'll ring the bell. Have the speaker finish up in the next 20 seconds. So the speaker should finish now. And the listener just say something like, I'm sensing that you felt this. Just take 30 seconds to do that. Okay? So the uh, listener should finish up now. And thank your partner in whatever way you'd like. And let's just take a, we'll just take a few minutes together with the large group, okay? Thank your partner and come. Come back to the whole group now.
So I want to just take a few minutes now and think the the practice that I'll invite for next week is to uh, take take one or both of the practices that we just did. Okay, let's let's finish up now. Um, let's focus on one or both of the practices that we just did. The first is the practice of being present, might be especially with the body. And if you feel called just to do that, that's a lot, right? Just to keep that sense of presence. And the other would be to work with empathy to tune into feelings. And again, we, we haven't gone so much into what to do with our speech, but this is a starting point, to be able to have the capacity to be empathic in the midst of speech and interaction. So you can either do one or both of them uh, in the next week. Okay? How many of you found it possible, at least in this very simple situation here, to keep some quality of inner presence as you were listening in the first exercise? Yeah. So was that accessible? Yeah. And could you be aware of the body some? Just keep some awareness of the body. Anything that helped people? Yeah. So she was, she was, I come as she was tapping her fingers. I don't think that's cheating. Ancient practice. (laughs) Uh, But seriously, whatever is going to work, you know, to do that. I mean, people might at worst think you're a finger tapper. (laughs) One of those finger tappers. (laughs) Or, you know, might be some random judgmental comments about something, but. That's great to find, because we want to find things that work for ourselves. You could do it. I mean, some people take, you know, their bracelets or something, and they just, you know, this is an ancient practice, just to have your hands going over a bracelet like that is an ancient practice in East and West, you know, or something something that keeps your attention in the present. Anything else help in that way? Yeah. I was just going to say the hard part is when you're speaking, because yeah. your mind is more engaged, and it's hard to, I think, you know, Definitely harder. How many found that harder when you were speaking? I think that's generally the case. So just try to, when you're speaking, maybe you can have a special focus or just try to keep a little bit of attention. You know, it's really, if you have a little bit of attention in the body, it will break what I, what I call the monopoly of the automatic mind. And it will actually be quite significant. So how about with the second exercise, with being, how many felt, how many, how many people felt like the other person was quite, Wonderfully empathic. You know, we have a we have a very well trained group here. <laughs> uh, but uh, and any observations about that? Yeah. Just an observation about the finger tapping or the bracelet. Yeah. If I'm talking to someone and they're doing something like that, I think they're not listening to me. Yeah. Right, so you might really be explicit and say, you may think I'm weird, but I'm really listening. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, so you know, be aware that people people interpret anything outside the norm. As, any other observations about the empathy part? It was enjoyable. How did it feel to be, to be heard accurately? Feels great. How many? How many actually from 
listening to the other person listen to you, heard someone report an emotion that you actually weren't so conscious that you had. Yeah, that's quite interesting in this kind of practice because people pick up on things that you may not pick up on. What? Or they were inaccurate. Yeah. How many people uh, had some people who were at least a little bit inaccurate? Okay. It was just a hypothetical. I thought she was inaccurate, but then when I thought about it again, I realized she was right. Yeah. Interesting. So in that instance, she knew you more than you knew her. You knew yourself, so to speak. Yeah, very interesting. So there's, it really is, um, empathy and interpersonal speech is a very powerful example of the teachings of interdependence. You know, we sometimes look to have these exalted meditation experiences that teach us about not-self. This is an experience of not-self or not having, you know, the teachings really about us not being independent. <coughs> and the, the brain science on the limbic system says we are actually, you know, our, our eyes that look at, at objects that are separate is a very different way of perceiving and interpreting than the limbic system, which more is sort of just in this field, you know, which is uh, more of an interdependent field. That's, that's how that brain works, right? That's how it works, tends to work with emotions, with that sense that worked into the very nature of the brain is community and a sense of interconnection. And we know that children that don't have that, their brains don't develop, right? You know, so it's very interesting. So it can really, so again, it's very ordinary. It's a very ordinary sense of not-self. So actually I think it's quite profound, something really to look at. And my invitation for this next week is to follow this. Follow what draws you. Keep it simple. Keep it really simple. Just choose one. Remember, if you can, remember it uh, in the morning. Intention plays a really key role here, I think, as you see. So that, how many found that that 10 second of setting intention was important for you? Yeah. And so work with intention before a meeting. You know, write it on your hand. You know, have uh, some way to keep remembering. Remember the hardest part about bringing meditation and awareness into daily life is not the practice itself, it's the remembering. The remembering to be aware. That's what's hardest. So, so I'll um, leave you with that, um, with those uh, practice suggestions and we'll come back next week and uh, compare notes and continue and develop some further tools and keep going with this. So I want to uh, thank everyone for your good attention, your wonderful empathy, your um, well-developed brains <laughs> and your uh, sincere practice. So may this be a benefit to us, to all those we're in contact with, and ultimately to all beings. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org dot org slash donate.